Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, where we're having off-the-record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of the Marcella Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women. At work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions, dealing with real issues, and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. Well, hello, everyone. Um, It's so good to be back with you. I'm still at my mom's in upstate New York. And I wish you could see me because I'm actually in the cellar with a bunch of blankets wrapped around hoping this doesn't echo. And I can't promise you that you won't hear the creaking of people walking in the kitchen above me because, you know, it's one of those old houses and it happens. So yeah, we're still in a series called The Table, and we've we've been talking about the importance that the table plays in our lives and in the lives of Jesus' day, and I know I've shifted podcasting to every other week, kind of slowing it down, trying to actually have more time to do interviews, and so our next episode about The Table, actually the final episode about The Table, will be on September 2nd, and you're not going to want to miss it. Because I'm going to be interviewing Georgia Pellegrini. Georgia is an author and a chef and an outdoor adventure expert and the host of the TV show Wild Food. It's going to be a very interesting conversation to be sure. So you're going to want to tune in. And even though I just said I'm going to go to every other week, I have to be honest. I couldn't resist. I have to talk on August 26th, next Wednesday, because That's the 100-year celebration for the rights of women to vote. And I had to do a podcast about it. I mean, I just had to. So I'll be sharing about how this one guy, actually a young man of the age of 24, was the person who determined the vote, like pushed it across the line, the winning line, if you will. And in that conversation, I'll also be interviewing Dr. Rob Dixon, who works as a campus minister for InterVarsity. And I'm going to be talking to him about his research, about how we can work to make more allies out of men to come alongside with and for women. So that'll be next Wednesday, August 26. So here we are. We're back to the table. We're the only creatures that eat communally. You know that, right? And our meals aren't just about nourishment, are they? I mean, otherwise, why would we decorate our table and use particular utensils for particular times to express certain things? And that's because meals are about way more than food. They function as tools for building community, transferring social values and what we eat, norms and even etiquette. And in Jesus' time, meals reinforced kinship, like who was in and who was out. It reinforced boundaries, hierarchy, status, gender. All of that was set at the table. Um, the table actually perpetuated social values and established who got honored and who didn't. And all kinds of stuff were communicated around mealtimes. And Jesus used that, that table culture of his time, as a tool to disrupt, challenge, and redirect. He's basically saying at the table, yeah, no, this isn't what God intended. 
Now let me show you what God did intend for this to look like. He does so much of that. We can learn so much around the mealtime stories in Scripture. But I want to stick to the theme that we talked about in our last episode, this disrupting and challenging and reframing that Jesus did around wine at a wedding. Except this time, the wine the wine that we're going to talk about is the wine we drink when we engage the sacrament called the Eucharist. And yes, I mean to, to imply that drinking the wine, among many other things, symbolizes Jesus' matrimonial commitment to you and me. I think it's there in the sacrament. And if you listen to last week's episode, you'll remember that throughout Scripture, God spoke about this marriage between him and his people. It's one of the ways he characterized his relationship with us, right? If you read it in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea, throughout Scripture we see that God is faithful and his bride is not. And John's gospel, as we've seen, also carries forth this marriage imagery. As I mentioned in the last episode, John chapter 2, we had the wedding at Cana. And this is where Jesus' first miracle is. And the miracle is he turns water into wine. And the Old Testament prophet Joel told us that when the kingdom of hand was at hand, that the vats of wine would overflow. That's, that's a symbol of when we know, like, yeah, the kingdom on earth is about to begin. And so Jesus turning like 700 plus bottles of water into wine was like, um, yeah, God's kingdom, it's at hand. It's starting now with me. And we also learned that Jesus turning water into wine is like his taking the posture of the bridegroom at the wedding. And in fact, a chapter later, John chapter 3, John the Baptist reminds us that indeed Jesus is just that. His disciples aren't happy because people are giving Jesus too much attention, and John reminds his disciples, I'm, I'm not the Messiah. I'm only here to prepare the way for him. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the best man is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Now, that's what John the Baptist said. And so this wedding theme is carried out throughout John's letter, and to catch it, we have to know something about Jewish weddings in antiquity. Because, you know, when you understand stories in the scriptures, you've got to have context, context, context. Context really is king. So in Judaism, when a man wanted to marry, he and his dad would come with a contract, a, uh, a fair offering for the woman's hand in marriage. And they'd go to the home where the future bride lived with his her parents and and, they, and the father was there, and they would present the offer to the father. And they would discuss the bride price, the mohair, right? A man might offer a couple cows or chickens or a few shekels for the, the hand of, of, a, of a girl to marry. What offer, whatever he offered, it was his way of saying how much he thought she was worth. And that's really significant. Hold on to that. Whatever he offered as the bride price is his way of saying, this is how much I think she's worth. And if we look at Ephesians, especially in the message translation, uh, chapter 1, verses 4, we read where it says, Long before he laid down earth's foundation, he had us in mind, had settled on us as a focus of his love to be made whole and holy by his love. And when I read that, I think, oh, Jesus, he... He traveled all the way from his father's house in heaven. He scaled mountains and swam rivers we know nothing of. 
and he left behind deep majesty to get to us. His arrival here at our doorstep was planned even before the worlds were formed. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They've been thinking about us and talking about us from ages past. And a plan was formulated that would impress us with God's love. A plan that would join us to God in a new and deep way and take care of the sin barrier once and for all. And the Trinity, the Trinity decided on the bride price. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 tells us we are bought with a price. What was the bride price that was offered for us? Well, 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19 tells us that that price was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So what does that long-time, long-traveled, heavy bride price communicate to you and to me about our worth? It's a good question to ask, isn't it? You know, I, I grew up with a dad who didn't value women or girls or me. My worth to my dad was really about how much work I could do for him on the farm. It was about production. And that was true of some of you also. But others of you were taught like your worth was dependent on your beauty, your body. In fact, it's still being communicated to you. Or maybe it was about how smart you were or how well you did with your financial achievements. The point is, some of us, all of us, one time or another, have been told we are not that worthy. Some of us have been told we have no worth at all. And let's be honest, we're pretty good at telling ourselves that too, aren't we? I call that self-abusing. We do it. I do it. Man, I think it's showing up a lot during COVID. We have this talent, if you will, of self-abusing, of saying to ourselves over and over again, we're not enough, not skinny enough, not smart enough, sexy enough, wealthy enough. We're just not enough. How many of us are doing that to ourselves right now? And I just, I think it really pains our Jesus when we buy into this idea that we aren't enough because he thinks we are so enough, so worthy. How do I know? Because of the bride price he paid. And I, I don't know about you, but Jesus paid that price a long time ago before I was ever born. And, hey, I've spent some years doing some really ugly stuff like sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I got a tevil, devil tattoo on my hip as proof. And even after I met Jesus, I've done some really ugly stuff too. And still, that price was paid before, knowing full well that I would be all of that. Paid for me, specifically for me, messy me, and specifically for you, messy you. I love what one theologian one time he said to me, Jackie, Jesus is the greatest of lovers. He loves us even when he knows he's our last choice. Yeah, sit on that for a minute. Jesus is the greatest of lovers. He loves us even when he knows he's our last choice. There's profundity in that. Jesus is clear. He says we're enough, and he has stamped us worthy. So back to the Jewish custom. If the bride price was agreeable to the woman's father, the young man would take and pour a glass of wine for the young woman, and he would set it before her. And if she drank the wine, well, it would indicate that she accepted his proposal. 
And at that point, the sipping of the wine, the young man and the young woman became what's called betrothed. Now, betrothal was like a, a legally binding um, contract, just like a marriage. The only difference is the marriage had not yet been consummated. That would come in a year or two after the bridegroom had prepared a home for his bride. But it's when the wine, when the wine touches the lips that the deal is sealed. See, when we accept Jesus' price, you know, that bride price, when we drink the wine, so to be speak, we're saying yes to that invitation into this relationship with Jesus that is utterly different, far more exclusive, permanent, and intimate than anything else we have ever known. And Jesus says to us in Hebrews 13, 5, that he will never leave us or forsake us. And that's really good news, right? Because that means if I burn the toast or wreck the car or gain like 15 or 50 pounds during the pandemic, he's not leaving. And this may sound weird, but I love that Jesus isn't a bully or dominant in my relationship with him. He doesn't use power over. Instead, he uses power for. I always tell women, God is not a divine rapist. That's very good news for us where there's such violence against women. God is not a divine rapist. He won't force himself upon us. Instead, he woos. He provides a space and a place and power for us to flourish. That's the kind of relationship that Jesus is offering us, and it is unlike any other. It's love. It's love without limits. It's love that informs and transforms. Anyone need that about now? I know I do. By the way, listening to that, there is a friend that you know that needs to hear that. Would you be willing to share this with them? And if you haven't already, I sure would appreciate it if you go over to iTunes or Apple or whatever platform you use and subscribe to our Jackie Always Unplugged. I'd really, really appreciate that. Context. We've got to keep going to the context of the stories of Scripture. In antiquity, in the Jewish custom, the bridegroom would leave gifts for his new bride so that she'd remember him because he's going to be gone for a while, for a couple years maybe. And during that time, she might, like, lose heart or start to think he's not actually coming back for her. So he leaves these very tangible things for her to be able to smell and see and touch. Reminders, if you will. Yep, I said I'm coming for you, and I am. And again, we see Jesus alluding to this, this very idea of leaving gifts for his bride-to-be. And we see it in John chapter 14 through 16 when he talks about the Holy Spirit. It's the longest discourse we have about the Holy Spirit. And why is it so long? Good question. Because Jesus had just told his followers, hey, I'm leaving, and I'm going somewhere that you can't go. And they start to freak out. And I can understand that because these dudes have given up everything to follow Jesus. And now he says to him, hey, I'm out. That. That is when Jesus starts introducing them to the Holy Spirit. And he says things to them. And now think about gift, this gift that's being left behind while he departs. John 16, 7, he says, it's actually best for you that I go away. Because if I don't, the advocate won't come. If I do go away, then I'll send him to you. John 14, 16 says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. And then he said the spirit will not only be with them, but he will be in them. So now we're talking about indwelling. Whoa, like 
I'd love for us to sometimes pause at the idea that one-third of the Trinity dwells within us. And yes, I know you can't divide the Trinity into thirds. Just go with me here. I mean, if we really comprehended that, I used to say, and I still say actually, I think many times the Holy Spirit screaming, let me out of (laughs) here. He goes on in John chapter 14, 26 through 27. He says, this advocate, the spirit is going to teach you everything that you need to know and remind you of everything that I've told you. He goes on to say, I'm leaving you a gift, peace of mind and heart. And what's that gift of peace? It's the spirit. The spirit is of the same essence as Jesus. It's God coming to dwell within. It's Jesus saying, I'm going, but I'm not leaving you orphaned. This is a gift to remind the bride-to-be that he is indeed coming back for her. And this spirit, this gift, will comfort, remind, challenge, teach, connect, transform, give hope. Give us the ability to actually experience the love of God. Yeah, that's the gift Jesus gave us. Again, you want to talk about your worth? Let's do that. Because Jesus is stamping us all over the place. Worthy, worthy, worthy. So enough. So what's Jesus doing while he's away? Very good question. Well, for those of you who were um, in church in the 90s, do you remember that song? I think it was sung by Audio Adrenaline, which I don't even know. I had to research that because I don't know music. And I actually can't sing, but I'm going to do it for you. Here it is. It's a big, big house with lots and lots of rooms and a big, big table with lots and lots of food. Remember that? We used to sing it, and we had hand motions to go with it and all of that. Yeah, the dudes that got their lyrics, they got them from John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, where Jesus said, I'm leaving, they're freaking out, and Jesus brings up this marriage language, and here it is. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's house. If it were not so, I wouldn't have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you. When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. Now, guys, this is Jewish wedding language because when the bridegroom proposes and then he leaves gifts, he heads back to his father's house to do what? To prepare a home for the new bride. Yeah, that's what Jesus is talking about here. Now, I want you to think about that just for a moment because this is a really fun thing to consider. That as Jesus is away and he has given us the spirit, he's back there with his dad building one nail at a time, hammering away. And as he does, he's considering your needs, your desires, your tastes, your favorite colors. He's specifically designing a place for you. When I think about the image of him building a place for me, well, I know what it's going to look like. I got to tell you, because I've always wanted a library, like a really, really big one. In fact, let's just make the whole house a library. That would make me really happy. And this library, it would have to have wooden floors, and it'd have to have bookshelves that go from the floor to the ceiling, which then would mean I need a sliding ladder. I've always wanted a sliding ladder. Haven't you like whoosh, away we go. Got to reach the books at the top. Always wanted one. And it's going to have to have a fireplace. It's going to have to keep me warm. And I want really comfortable chairs and a couch, nothing leather, 
leather sticks to my skin. Maybe it's just because I live in Texas and we sweat a lot there. But I don't like leather on my skin. It's just not that comfortable. So I'm not really sure what couch he'll pick out, but I know it's going to be perfect for laying down and reading books. Yeah, that's my room. I'm sure he's building me a library. And of course, I'll have to have a secret door that opens up into a little small kitchenette and a bathroom because you've got to have a bathroom. And since we have a bathroom, well, then why not throw in one of those old claw-footed tubs, you know, the one that I can read a book in for sure. I think that's the house he's building for me. Now, I'm sure your house is different from mine, but hey, maybe, maybe we could see if Jesus would build them next to each other because I like a lot of you, and I'm hoping we can be neighbors. I'm really in needs for some community right about now. How about you? Yeah, so that's what Jesus is doing. It takes a year or two. Yeah, in the Jewish custom, he'd walk away for about a year or two, and she'd have to keep looking at those gifts, holding and smelling them reminding herself that he is indeed coming back for her. And that, by the way, is the time frame in which we find ourselves at this time in history. Jesus lived, and he died, and he got up, and he ascended, and he's building. And in the meantime, he's given us the gift of the Holy Spirit. But I'd also argue he's also left us with the gift of the Eucharist to remember, to remember him that he is indeed coming back for us. Isn't that part of what the Eucharist is for? I know some of you call it communion, others call it Last Supper, call it what you might. The point is Jesus instituted it at the Last Supper, a tangible way for us to be reminded every week that our Jesus is in fact coming back for us. That night, just before he was arrested, he celebrated a meal, the Passover meal with the disciples. And now I got to tell you, there's a debate over whether it was the true Seder meal or whether it was just a meal during the Passover week. And I'm not going to quibble about that. The point I want to make is it's during this week-long festivity where Jesus remembered the Exodus story, right? There's a retelling of the Exodus story throughout the week. And what is the Exodus story about? about freeing God's people from slavery in Egypt. And all of that, that story, that retelling, that liturgy, if you will, was done around food and meals. And it's during the meal, the last meal that Jesus has, that he gives the gift of the Eucharist. Just listen to what the Luke's gospel says and see if you can pick up the marriage imagery in the Eucharist being instituted at the Last Supper. And here's what it says. It's actually out of chapter 22, verses 14 through 20. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Now, let me just pause at that sentence, sat down at the table. Let me pause and say, I know most of us have admired Leonardo da Vinci's painting of the Last Supper, where there's this long table, Jesus is in the middle, and all these male disciples are sitting in a line on each side of him. It is very beautiful. It is also not accurate because in antiquity, they didn't actually sit in chairs at a table and definitely not in a straight line facing outward. They reclined. Think of a lounge chair. And the text doesn't exactly tell us, but I'm pretty sure that women were also present. Now, why do I say that? I say that because women were with Jesus since the inception of his ministry. 
way back in Galilee. I mean, just look at, just look at Luke chapter 8. The reason he mentions Mary Magdalene is because he's trying to pull us back to the fact that she's from Galilee, so which means she started with Jesus and his ministry way back in the beginning. And she's with him when she's in, he's in Judea and Jerusalem, and she's there at the end at the cross. In fact, she's at the tomb. She's the first to ever see the resurrected Christ. The women were always there. So I'm going to assume, even though it wasn't recorded, I'm going to assume they were present. So there's that. So there's reclining, and there's women. And Jesus said, again, pay attention to the wedding language, the imagery here. I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he took a cup of wine and he gave thanks to God for it. And then he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. And he took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it. And then he broke it into pieces and he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took another cup of wine and he said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. Now that sounds a lot like the bride price. And there's covenantal language in there and a sipping of wine and remembering. Is it possible that the Eucharist is, among many other things, a reminder about a wedding proposal between Jesus and his people. Now, don't get me wrong. <laughs> I'm not sure any of the Jewish guys or gals that were sitting in that room really got the meaning of it. And if I'm honest, I'm not sure that when I walk down the aisle and I receive the bread and the wine that I fully get that either. But I want to. I want to. And I think in light of our times, like, I kind of need to at this moment. Isn't it kind of disappointing that we can't gather and take the Eucharist together? That's one of the things I'm missing the most during this pandemic. I need reminding, unlike probably any other time in my life, we're in the middle of a pandemic, and then we have the Black Lives Matter protests, and there's politics that are just like just consuming us and the divisiveness of it, and then the opening of schools right now, right? We're all in angst. There's violence against women and separation of children from their parents at the border, and I need reminding that my Jesus is indeed coming back. I need reminding of that. I need reminding that when he comes for his bride, that there will be a wedding feast that ensues. And this is what John writes about in Revelation. He says, praise the Lord, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and let us give honor to him, for the time has come for a wedding feast of the Lamb, and his bride has prepared, the, and his bride has prepared herself. She has, given her, given, she has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear. For the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. And the angel said, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And then a few chapters later, John reminds us, and man, this is what I need reminding, and it's tied to Jesus' coming back. He says that he will wipe every tear from our eyes, and that there will be no more death, or sorrow, or crying, or pain. And that all those things will be gone forever. Things will be made new when Jesus comes back. And with that, I'll end this story 
at the table, the Eucharist table, where I sip the wine and say John's words, Yes, Lord Jesus Christ, come. Thank you for walking through this table series with me. Again, I want to remind you, August 26th, we'll be talking to Rob Dixon, and we'll be talking about how women won the vote to to vote. Um, And also, on September 2nd, you're going to want to tune in and listen to Georgia and I talk about what she's learned about food and actually how it's impacted and transformed women's lives. Until then, have a great week, and remember, you are worthy. Hey, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then hop on over to themarcellaproject.com and sign up for our email or check out some of our other resources. You can also find me on the Marcella Project Facebook page or on every other platform of social media as Jackie Reese, R-O-E-S-E. Have a great day.